You're listening to the Double Dose Podcast with Dr. Trish and Jeff Todd. Hello, Dr. Trish. Hello, Jeff. Welcome back. Episode six of the Double Dose Podcast. Yeah. Because we've migrated. We have. (laughs) We've had to change the name. We had to change a lot of things. And now it's the Double Dose, which is even better. It is better. Twice as good. And tell everybody who our special guest is today. Our special guest today is Dr. Lyndon Gross. Yay. Welcome, Dr. Gross, for his first presence on the Double Dose podcast. He's... It might be his last if he doesn't like it, so yeah. put on your best behavior. I'll do the best I can. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> nice to know you. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you for having me. So Dr. Gross is an orthopedic surgeon with the Orthopedic Center of St. Louis. He has offices in St. Louis as well as Cape Girardeau. He's a specialist in sports medicine, and uh, he's got a he's got a very interesting backstory. So I'm going to jump in here because when I told people we're doing a podcast with you, everybody goes, you've got to hear about his background. I don't know what that means. Did you come from a family of 30 or you grew up in Dubai? I don't know. What's what's so interesting and wonderful about, and maybe it was medical school or what you did in training. We've got to hear it all now. Okay. Well, we can start from the beginning. Uh, Day one, still tired from the move. But no, okay. No, um, I grew up in uh, Rochester, New York. I have uh, four sisters, one brother. Um, is Kodak in Rochester, New York? Uh, yes, it is. And there we my go. dad worked for Kodak uh, for 40 years until he retired. I think so. one of my relatives, somebody, worked for Kodak. And the only, only way I would have known that. Thanks yeah. for that random fact. You're welcome, Jeff. Yeah. I'm and good with those. <laughs> but no, I grew up in Rochester, New York. Um, I went to a uh, Christian Brother High School, similar to CBC here, but it's called Bishop Carney. Uh, then I ended up uh, going to Cornell after that for uh, undergrad, played football there, and then I ended up- What position? I played strong safety. Mm. So, yeah. So played strong safety there and um, was a uh, all-Ivy League player my senior year and the uh Got the coaches award, which is the MVP for the team, voted by the coaches, not voted by uh, the players. Um, and then so ended you up- were a good player, but not very popular. No, I'm I was just good- joking. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, I was, I was a good player. I was actually I was a popular player too. But, uh, but they so they give an MVP for. Um, I guess it's a season. And one of my friends, John Tagliferi, he's a running back, a good friend of mine, still uh, talked to him. He's a businessman out in uh, San Francisco. He was the MVP for the season. And and then they do sort of like an MVP, more or less, for a career, somebody that's been uh, consistent for their whole career. And that's the award I won that year. So. My goodness. Jeff. It's interesting because I know this little tr- trivia fact about Dr. Gross, too. I did not know about football. Better than Kodak? Better than Kodak. Okay. Rugby. He's a big deal in the rugby world. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Football and rugby? I mean, they're kind of the same. They're in a little bit of soccer-ish stuff with football together, and that makes rugby. Yeah. it's. Uh, they say that uh, that uh, the person who developed rugby uh, on his grave, it says that uh, he picked up the ball and ran. 
So he was a soccer player, but picked up the ball and ran, and that's how rugby started. But yeah, I played. Um, so all the so when I went to medical school, I actually did an MT PhD down in uh, New York City at the State University of New York Health Science Center at Brooklyn. So it's one of the uh, State University of New York schools. They obviously have one in Brooklyn. They have one in uh, Buffalo. They have one uh, in Albany. They have one in Syracuse. So. I initially started off as a uh, PhD student, so it was sort of an interesting, I guess, transition into getting to medicine as I uh, wanted to go to medical school. So um, what was your PhD? Uh, in molecular biology. Okay. So, yeah, so when I got out of college, it actually, so if we go back to college, I'm playing football. Um, I don't do great in school my first two years, but I do really well in school my last two years of uh, undergrad. I decide I want to go to medical school and um, I get a, actually I get a waiver because the MCATs are given on Saturdays, but I have to take it on a Sunday because we actually play University of Pennsylvania the Saturday they're given the test. So we play University of Pennsylvania the Saturday to give the test. We lose 10 to 6, and I decide the next day I'm not taking the MCATs. <laughs> so I just never took the MCATs. Oh I didn't goodness. go. So then I looked at it, and I said, well, I have to do something. And I had done research uh, during the summers at the University of Rochester Medical Center in neuroendocrinology. So, And I had actually gotten two papers written out of that from the research I had done. And I decided, well, I'm going to do a PhD because I like science. I'm good at science, and I don't really want to go to work. Because my dad said, well, when you graduate from college, you have to work unless you're going to do something else like continue school. So I decide that I'm going to go to uh, graduate school. So I get into graduate school in New York um, at uh, Healthside Center in Brooklyn, and I start going to uh, school there. And all of the medical schools in New York City have rugby teams. So Columbia Physicians and Surgeons, Cornell, New York Med, uh, NYU, uh, New Jersey Medical School, they all have rugby teams. I'm like, why do you have a rugby team? And they're like, well, we need something for the students, at least the male students, to get some of their anxiety and, and everything else that goes on with going to medical school out. So I start playing rugby for this medical school, which I'm a football player. I play rugby like a football player. You uh, try to tackle people as hard as you can when you don't really need to do that because rugby is not really a uh, hard tackling game. It's more of a ball possession game. So it's a completely different mindset. And I start playing and I play and some people, some teams we play besides the med schools, we played some men's teams and we see some men's teams we play. And some guys saw me play and they said, why don't you really take this seriously and play men's rugby or, or, or try to play club rugby is what it is. So I started playing club rugby and uh, I go and play for this team I'm playing for out of Rockaway, New York, and we end up uh, playing in a tournament and I get seen by some other gentlemen who have a team and they're like, well, why don't you play for this team we're playing for? So I end up playing for them and I end up in, the weirdest thing, I end up in, um, uh, in Cape Fear in Wilmington, North Carolina, playing in this tournament. And I'm playing for a team called Almax, and uh, we're playing against this Atlantis team. And this Atlantis team is actually a team that's coached by Emil Cygnus, who is the head coach for the U.S. national team. And it's a bunch of players from all over the United States he's put together to play. And we actually beat them, and I actually play very well. And, and you've already flunked out of medical school by now because not, you've de <laughs> devoted all your time to rugby. <laughs> devoted all my time to rugby. And, and it's just so funny that I play. And then he literally says to me, he goes, you should play for the U.S. Na you should come to U.S. national camp and try to play. So 
as this is going on, this is probably my uh, third year of my PhD. I'm doing my PhD work. And I decide right at that time that I want to go to medical school. And I uh, go to the dean of the medical school and I say, oh, actually, I went to my my uh, faculty advisor, who's the chairman of the molecular biology department where I was in. And I said to him, I said, I, I like science. I like doing research, but I just don't think I can write grants and do research for the rest of my life. I, I just think it's going to work that way. I, I love what I do, but it's just not my passion. I'd rather go to medical school and I really think I want to do orthopedic surgery. I really think I want to, that's what I want to do with my career. And he was like, you've done three years worth of your research. You probably have about a year left of bench work and uh, then you can start writing your thesis. I had taken some of the med school classes already. I'd actually taken microbiology. I'd taken physiology. I'd taken biochemistry. I'd actually taught, uh, taken molecular biology or, uh, you know, and I'd actually taught biochemistry to the, um, and microbiology to the, uh, to the med students. And he says, you, well, you don't have too many more courses to take. You can take these courses and I guess start med school while you're finishing your PhD. And, uh, I go and talk to the Dean of the, uh, med school who thought it was a great idea too. And the Dean of the graduate school thought it was a horrible idea and didn't want me to do it because he was concerned that other people would try to get into medical school by trying to do their PhD. And I assured him that I was going to finish my PhD, that I wasn't going to stop my research work, but I'd go to medical school. So I end up getting into medical school. And right when I get into medical school, I end up getting selected to play for the U S national team. And then I'm like, you know, in their pool of players and I'm sitting there going, okay, well, I may have to travel. I may not have to travel. I'm trying to do medical school and do my research when I'm not going to class. And this is going to, uh, this may not, it may not work, but so it worked this out. This right. is when you actually flunked out. No, no, okay. that's, uh, that's <laughs> when I, that's when I had to, uh, study a little bit more and make sure I was doing everything, but, but no, but it was, uh, it was fun and, and has, uh, you know, uh, Jeff said, I ended up, um, getting to travel. I got to play in, uh, in Hong Kong and, uh, uh, some other places. So it's fun and try to do that during the time I was doing. So how long were you on the national team? Well, I was in the national pool for a couple of years. So, and then they select from that pool guys to go to different tournaments and play. So. That's fantastic. So great yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. So you never flunked out. Never Just flunked so out. Never, never <laughs> flunked out. So. So I assume it's the background in football and rugby that led push to orthopedics then? I mean, it seems like a natural progression. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed sports. Um, I played sports all my life. I, I think the orthopedic thing for me was that, uh, and I think everybody goes through this when you're in medical school. You uh, go to medical school, and, and no one in my family was in medicine, number one. So I didn't know anything about medical school. I just thought you go to college, just like just like when you're in high school, you you go to college. That's what you do. But you don't realize that you have to do certain things in high school, perhaps doing well in your classes, perhaps doing well on your SATs to get into a good college, to go to college. And then when you're in college, you're like, okay, you do well in college and you just go to medical school. But yeah, you have to do well in college, do well on the MCATs. And then you have to uh, go to medical school. And then when you're in medical school, it's the same thing. You have to do well in medical school to get a residency in something, especially if it's something that's uh, that's competitive. Uh, so here I am, I'm in um, 
you know, when you're, t- when you're talking about it and you're talking about going to medical school, uh, you're doing medical school and everybody in my class, I remember the first year of medical school, um, everybody's going to be a surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon, a neurosurgeon. Everybody's going to do every guy at least is going to be macho and do some sort of surgical specialty. And I was like, yeah, maybe I want to do surgery. Maybe I want to do something else. But I think you figure it out really quick after your second year, when you start doing your third year, that either you're, I guess I call it a thinker or doer. So you're either a thinker and you're going to think, and you're going to go into a medical specialty because you're like Sherlock Holmes. You're going to see somebody and you're going to figure out this mystery of what's wrong with them. Or you're a doer, you're, you're like an orthopedic surgeon and you just like to hit uh, square pegs in the round holes. You, you know, you're you're going to do something. You're going to do something to make somebody better. So somebody has a problem and you're going to fix it and they're going to go on with the rest of their life. And I think uh, really early in uh, looking at what I wanted to do, especially in my, even in my first two years, it became apparent to me that, you know what, I'd rather fix stuff and make people better than to try to sit there and figure out this, uh, this puzzle, like, uh, like a Sherlock Holmes, uh, you know, mystery. And, and it's just what I, what I found more interesting to me and actually more rewarding too. Cause I felt like somebody has a problem, you fix it, they get better, they go away. They're happy to see you when you see them in the street somewhere. And they're happy to tell you stories about what they're doing now, since you've, you know, fixed their shoulder or their knee or their elbow. To cut is to cure. So your favorite injury? No, no, no. We're not there yet. Oh, because he's got other parts of his history that are really important that a lot of people don't understand. Okay. Well, so, we, how does he get to St. Louis? Maybe. No, we're not be even good, there before oh, that. There's even before more that. to this. See, I his, told you there's his something His fellowship. Here. So here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. Let's talk about him like he's not here first. Okay. Go ahead. We'll talk about him like he's not here. Okay. So here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand. When they shop for a doctor, uh, specifically orthopedics, there's a lot of stuff that, that they don't really get. Like- some patients will look and they'll say, oh, they went to Wash U or I think Wash U's good, so they must be good. But in orthopedics, there's a couple of layers to that. And one of them can be your fellowship right. and where you get your fellowship training. Most patients are not aware that there are certain fellowships that are a really big freaking deal. And they only take the cream of the crop. They only take the best of the best. The good Dr. Gross has done that fellowship. Oh, in New York? No. Okay. How dare you? That I'm sounds so like you talking to one of our previous guests that would say that that fellowship is in New York. Apparently. But it's maybe in Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, would I you argue, Alabama. Would, I, I, here's the question we'll ask you. We'll put you on the spot. Some would say the best orthopedic residency or fellowship is at HSS. One of your partners would say that. But I might, I don't know where I'd sit in this, but Birmingham's a big deal. How would you say as a graduate of the Birmingham Fellowship? Well, I, I think it's really important what you're trying to do. Well, the Sports Medicine Fellowship in Birmingham with Dr. Andrews and Dr. Clancy, that's where I trained, uh, I think is a great fellowship. I think that it's, if you're really trying to do um, sports medicine, specifically you're trying to do throwing shoulder, I think it's a great fellowship working with Dr. Andrews. And if you were interested in complex knee injuries, then it's a great fellowship with Dr. Clancy. So I think it's a good fellowship in the sense that uh, you work closely with two individuals that are very good at what they do. Now, the fellowship at HSS is a good fellowship. You work with multiple different people and, and it's the same thing. There's another fellowship out West that people would say the same thing about if you went to Curlin Job and it's the same thing. There are multiple surgeons out there and they're all great surgeons. Um, 
and working with multiple surgeons is great too, because you get many different outlooks on stuff or, or get to learn different techniques from different people. My experience, I think, was better, or I would say that fellowship is better, just because it was with two people who were really specialized in what they did, and you're able to pick their mind and just do that fellowship or do those operations or treat those patients or uh, or see what you saw with them and not have to, um, you didn't divide your time. You're working with six different people. You're going to learn things from each one of them, but sometimes it may be diluted a little bit as opposed to working with one person who specializes in this one area and being able to just do everything with him and learn everything you can in one year to do that. So for me, doing something in a fellowship that's two individuals that are specialized in as opposed to six or seven is probably better. That That's how I would look at it. So, Do you think that the lay public, the average Joe understands who Jimmy Andrews is? The answer is no. <laughs> well, if you watch sports, uh, well, you know, obviously Dr. Andrews now is uh, older. He's 78, um, still practicing, uh, still seeing athletes. But, you know, if you look when I did my fellowship uh, 21 years ago, if you got on sports center and somebody got hurt, they were going to see Dr. Andrews. Uh, and you would hear that all the time. They're going to Birmingham or they're going to see Dr. Andrews. And he would see pretty much everybody. It would be a hodgepodge uh, of professional athletes. We used to always laugh when we were in fellows of uh, uh, the other fellows that did their fellowship with me. We would laugh on Mondays because we would watch football on Sunday, NFL football, and someone would get hurt. And they would be in our office the next day. That Monday, they would be in our office. They had flown to, you know, to Birmingham, and we were seeing them. So, so it was on Sunday things. in the office on Monday. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he's. Uh, I mean, for those of us that live in that world, I guess he's a he's a really big deal. I mean, he, the stories about him are pretty epic in the orthopedic community. I mean, he's like sultans of Brunei fly across the country to go see the guy, and I mean. You know, he, he's pretty much, if you've got a shoulder that's worth a couple of million dollars in a sport, you go see him and ask him about it. Knees too, though. I mean. Right. You're not going to be a foot and ankle surgeon, although I'm sure you had to have that exposure. Yeah. I mean, there there are, and in that fellowship I did, there, there were foot and ankle surgeons down there. We didn't really work with them, but there were foot and ankle surgeons that did sports foot and ankle and just regular foot and ankle too. But yeah, I mean, he he's that guy. And, and it's funny because... Um, Whenever I talk about him, I, 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 I have a great feeling in my heart because he's like your, I used to see him talk to patients regardless. You could be the guy that makes $20 million a year throwing a baseball and he has to fix your elbow. Or you could be an old woman who comes in because she uh, thought she had a knee problem, but it's really her ankle. And he would see you and treat you exactly the same way. I mean, I saw that guy get down on the floor to examine some 70 year old woman's foot and he's sitting on the floor examining her foot and I'm just in my head I'm going this guy just looks at everybody the same way and they're who they are and it doesn't matter where they come from and he had one of those memories where you would see somebody that he had seen before and you would tell him you'd say you know Dr. Andrews is Mr. X he has a farm in Mississippi he drove over to see you you and he would all of a sudden finish it for you go oh yeah I, I remember him I operated on his shoulder about 5 years ago he has a dairy farm or whatever it may be and 
he would go in that room and that guy would remember him and he'd remember that guy and he'd start talking to him about everything. And the next thing you know, they've been in that room talking for 10 minutes about this guy's tractor that he bought or his daughter getting married. And, you know, and it, that's just that type of guy he was. And he treated everybody, even the pro athletes that way. And it's funny because we'd have pro athletes come down there to see us and never in all the time I've known him, even now, he's the same way. He would tell those athletes, this is what's wrong with you. He would even tell them, I know your doctor that takes care of your professional team. Great doctor. He can do the same surgery for you. You're welcome to go back there. And a lot of times they end up staying because they're at their, their agents would want them to stay with him. And he would do the surgery, but he would never, never say a bad word about anybody. Actually, I, I mean, almost try to convince them to go back to the doctor that takes care of their team. And they would stay down there and he would do it. And, and, and I felt like they felt like this is like my, my dad or my granddad. And he's going to take care of me and it's all going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Do you think that that maybe is really what led to the lore of Jimmy Andrews? Like, I mean, there's a lot of guys that are really good surgeons, but that part of it is probably where a lot of people are lacking, that humility. And so do you think it was maybe that more than, I mean, he's obviously very skilled. I mean, he's obviously, but do you think that that's probably what led to the lore that is why everybody, when the quarterback blows his shoulder out, that's why they get on a plane and go see him? I think a lot of that has to do with, has to do with his bedside manner, has to do with how he treats not only his athletes, but treats their families, treats their, uh, their agents, uh, you know, and, and makes everybody, he made everybody feel comfortable. And there are other surgeons I work with who've done the same thing, but it just like, to me, it just stuck in my memory that, you know, people would go down and no matter who it was, I mean, I had seen him, you know, talk to, like I said, somebody that made $20 million a year throwing a baseball the same way he talked to uh, somebody who uh, twisted her knee that was, uh, you know, plowing their field. So, I mean, so he, that, that was just him. That was just the way he was with everybody. So. Have you adapted that kind of clinical style? In your no, own work? No, no, I, no, no, I mean everybody. No. I'm a total dick. Yeah. Yeah. You, no. you, you definitely show preference to the people who are making 20 million versus the little lady. Most okay. definitely. Fair enough. No, no, we, no, we, we try to treat, I, I have tried to integrate that into my practice too and try to treat everybody that way. I think that, uh, you know, if you, if you can relate to everybody and you can get down on that level with them and make sure that they understand that that's your purpose, your purpose is, is to help them, is to be there for them, that they uh, they understand that. And actually, to tell you the truth, they, they respect it. They uh, they are more likely to do anything you ask them to do to try to make themselves better. And if there's something that doesn't work, it doesn't go well, because not everything we do is always a success. Uh, they're fine with that because they realize that you've tried your best or done whatever you could do for them. So, but I always laugh because the one story I tell about Dr. Andrews, and maybe this won't be on this, but maybe it will, is uh, he used to always want to make sure that the patients understood what was going on with them. So typical Dr. Andrews has seen this guy and I, I saw the gentleman beforehand and I'm presenting to Dr. Andrews. I mean, this is Mr. X. He, uh, you know, hurt his knee. He has a meniscal tear. So Dr. Andrews goes in there and sits down and in his typical voice, he's like, you know, he looks at me, he goes, he goes, he goes so you, you hurt your knee. And the guy goes, yeah, I hurt my knee. Dr. Andrews goes, he goes, well, your knee's ruined. And the guy goes, okay. And he goes, yeah, you, you tore that gristle in your knee. And the guy looks at him 
and says, you mean like my meniscus? And Dr. Amos goes, yeah, you could call it that. And that's when I sort of fell out of my chair and started laughing because here he is trying to dumb this down for this guy to try, try, you know, to try to get on his level because he thinks, okay, he's a farmer. He's not going to understand the whole meniscus articular cartilage, all these other things we talk about. So he's tried to dumb it down a little bit. And, and the guy just looks at me and he goes, you mean like my meniscus? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, you called that story. so so sort of funny, but uh, but that's just the type of guy he was. So, so following your fellowship, here's where my research on Dr. Gross falls silent. How do you get to St. Louis? Exactly, Birmingham, Alabama. We start in New York. We go to Birmingham. I get why you're in Birmingham, but then how do we get to St. Louis? Well, so you know, I was in New York. Uh, undergrad, my PhDMD, uh, go to Pittsburgh for my residency, which was also oh, a great place that's to train. Halfway to Alabama. So, yeah, that's a great question. I wanted to ask you, is that, was that the Freddie with Freddie Fu? Yeah. Yeah. To work with Dr. Fu and he's another, <laughs> another one that's the same way. He's so. like literally. Okay. Seriously. You're just name popping now. Right, no, cause I, I, it's really interesting to me. I didn't realize you were at Pittsburgh, but, um, before today, but if you were going to create the Mount Rushmore of sports medicine, I mean, those two names probably are on it, right? Yeah, I mean, probably, what do you think? I, you put, is Donald Trump on that? No, he's not on that. <laughs> no, hopefully not. But uh, but no, you'd put you'd put probably Freddie Fu on that. You'd put uh, James Andrews on that, and then the guy from New York, you'd probably put Russ Warren at HSS, uh, Dave Alcheck, who's at HSS. Uh, you know, those are the names you'd probably put on that on that board. You know, obviously, uh, if you're out uh, going out west, you'd put somebody like uh, uh, Dick Stedman or uh, you know, or Rich Hawkins. So those are all names that you would sit up there that are the guys that you would look at, and those names are the names you would see in the orthopedic world that do uh, most of the not most of big sports medicine. That's bad way to say it, but they're the well-known names in sports medicine. So that's what you would say. And I didn't realize I was like, is this, does that mean he trained under Freddie Fu and Andrews? I mean, this is not like, this is stuff that's inside baseball for a lot of things. He played football and then actually was really good at rugby. That's right. Guys, obviously. I just don't understand how to articulate that um, to patients. Like, like it's, it's interesting because I, as a nerd of that understands this stuff, I'm like, man, this is a really big deal. Like this guy's been in some, was <laughs> trained under some really big deep people. I don't know how you know how you articulate that to patients because it's, it's, it gets lost, but. Because you're a good physician, Jeff. But no, what I'm saying is uh, even from like when patients are shopping for doctors, okay. And they're out there Googling names or whatever. That's the interesting thing is this mean doesn't mean much to patients, but it really should. Like it really is different. Like you're different than the guy that had his train potentially trained somewhere else. Like you were exposed to a lot of different things. And that's the part of it that always is kind of conundrum because I know that it's a big deal in your circles. Like, Hey, I train at a food, I train at wherever, but it doesn't communicate to patients. Like they don't understand what that means. And I'm like, how, how do you fix that? How, how do you articulate that to patients? Like, Hey, my, and you wouldn't do it because you're charging more. (laughs) Hey, that's, I wish it worked that way. No, no, I don't, I don't want it to work that way. But, uh, but I think that, um, yeah, I agree with you, uh, Jeff. It's, it's interesting because 
some of my patients know that. Like there are a few patients that come uh, because they have um, shoulder or elbow injuries and they're, and they're throwing injuries. So they understand and they look at it and they say, well, this gentleman trained with uh, or this doctor rather trained with uh, Dr. Andrews. So obviously he is well versed in sh- uh, throwing shoulder and elbow. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it, it's, I think uh, the lay person, a orthopedist is an orthopedist is an orthopedist and it doesn't matter who it is, they all do everything. And and we know that that's not the case. I'm sort of a little bit of a purist in what I do. You know, I do shoulder, elbow, and knee. I stay away from things. I don't, I don't do hand. I could do hand if I wanted to. I had great training in hand in my, in my residency, but you know, there are multiple other doctors in this community that are much better hand surgeons than I am. The same thing with foot and ankle. So I, so it's weird because I see people all the time to get hurt and, um, and or friends of mine who have friends who got hurt and they're like, oh, well, he's going to see Dr. X for his knee. And I'll know that Dr. X is uh, a good surgeon, but he's not really the surgeon for that type of knee problem. And, and you want to say, well, you might benefit from going to this person because that person specializes in that. And and and, and it's what it is. And, and, I, and like I said, it, it's hard to get to lay person to understand uh, what what you really do, how you trained, you know, for, you know, Freddie was a, was great surgeon. I mean, I, I, I could tell you right now that it probably the best uh, arthroscopist I've ever seen. Freddie could scope everything and he was good at everything and, and a great, just a, you know, he unfortunately died this year, but he great surgeon, great person. He was the same way as uh, Dr. Andrews in the sense that he remembered everybody. Again, one of those people that just had one of these memories that just remembered every patient he saw, uh, could tell you about that patient, talk about what was going on with him when he saw him uh, previously. Uh, very good surgeon, um, very uh, caring of everybody. I, I don't think there's anybody, and I think you could say the same thing for uh, Dr. Andrews. I don't think there's anything I, that if somebody trained with those two people that if they asked for, they wouldn't do. I mean, you could ask them for anything and they would get back to you and try to help you with it. And then it's just the type of person they were. And I think that not only learning from them, but taking some of their personality and trying to place it into your own practice is, is uh, important and what I've tried to do at least. Now we're to the point. How the hell did you get to St. Louis? New York, uh, Pittsburgh, Alabama. So here I am sitting in Alabama and uh, I got to get a job. <laughs> it's pretty humid. Yeah, it's very humid, but I have to get a job. I have to finish my fellowship. And at one point in time, Dr. Andrews, I think, thought he would just adopt me and I would stay down there because uh, I couldn't figure out where I wanted to be in the country. And he was like, well, you can just stay here and work for me, you know. And I, at that point in time, he was trying to hire somebody as another partner. And he actually ended up hiring uh, two of the guys that did their fellowship the year after me who stayed down there. But, uh, but I felt like I'd seen everything I could see in Birmingham, Alabama in one year. I didn't think there was anything else I could do. Coming from Western New York and then going to medical school in New York City, I was like, you know what? This is a little small for me. It is very small. Yeah. And uh, I decided to get a recruiter to help me try to find a job. So this recruiter calls me one day and he says, I have a job for you, a job interview. And I go, okay, great. And at the time, you know, I'm single. Here I am. I want to go somewhere. I'm hoping to go back somewhere where there's a big city. And he says, well, I have this uh, job in Martin, Tennessee. And I have no idea where Martin, Tennessee is. I only, they only know two cities in 
Tennessee, Nashville, and uh, Memphis. Memphis, yeah. And this is Martin, Tennessee. So I'm like, where the hell is Martin, Tennessee? And I look it up on a map, and I'm like, well, mm, no, I don't want to go there. So he's like, okay, well, you know, that's great. So he calls me up the next day, and he says, well, I have another job opportunity for you. And I go, where is that? He goes, Sweetfort, Louisiana. And again, I only know one city in Louisiana. That's New Orleans. And I've been to Shreveport, though, so at least I knew what Shreveport was. And I was like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to work either. And then, he lo- and then I said to him, I said, you know, I'm single. I grew up in western New York, but I went to school in New York City. Most of my friends are in New York City. Um, I'd prefer to be in a bigger city. So then he got me an interview in San Antonio, and it was a nice job and everything. But then he comes up and he says, I have this job in St. Louis. It's a group that has a sports medicine uh surgeon who's leaving. He's leaving to go back to California because he's from California. He's been in St. Louis for seven years. He's married, has kids. His wife's from California. They're moving back there. And you could come in and take over that practice. So um, I come here to St. Louis for this interview and they actually were moving into a new building. Uh, That building was going to have um, an MRI scanner in it, physical therapy, and there was a surgery center across the street. And at that time, Health South was still around, and their Health South was doing this uh, joint venture with them. And it just made sense from a my standpoint, being a sports medicine guy, that, hey, I'm going to move into this new office. They have a MRI scanner in the office. They have physical therapy in the office. There's a surgery center across the street. What could be better? And then you were here. And then I was here. And that so. was, was that over in... Our old, our old office was that the the um, Big Bend and uh, yeah Big Bend and Kirkwood Road yeah right across the street I from Dark Harley you always forget he was in that practice before you oh my goodness yeah they were kind of related too. yeah yeah it's only like six degrees of separation from like all the orthopedics in this town I know you should have warned me yeah and then they made you leave too so, <laughs> so so we both we both ended up leaving at some point in time but it was uh. Interesting dynamic, and um, and then I ended up in the group I'm in now, which I'm much happier with. But it was, uh, you know, it was it was my first practice. Um, got to learn a lot of stuff about it. Got to learn a lot about uh, the, I guess you would call it the uh, financial uh, uh, standpoint of medicine, because I don't think they teach anything about the business of medicine when you're in medical school, your residency. They just treat they just teach you how to treat patients. They don't teach you any other stuff. So true. And you get to to learn the narcissism of partners. That's even more fun. Yeah, you get to well, you get to learn about people who when I left that practice, I asked one of my partners who was a very busy partner who saw lots of patients and lots of workers' compensation patients and would send these patients anywhere but to our office when they needed surgery. I remember asking him at the end and I said to him, I said, I was here for four years and I know you saw a lot of these patients and you never sent me a patient. And he sort of said to me, well, you know, that's not my purpose to direct care or anything like that. And I said, but um, I think I'm a good surgeon. I think I'm a good partner. Why wouldn't you direct them to me? Because I would send patients to you. And he says, well, it's just not my purpose. And at that point in time, I recognized that I'd probably made the right decision to leave. So I was okay with that at that time. Gosh. I kind of know that person. I'm glad I made the right decision to leave as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you end up in St. Louis. Um, 
And then now you have the practice that you have today, which is predominantly. I actually, let's go okay. back. I'm actually feeling kind of bad for you because, I mean, I like big cities. You came from a big city. You kind of, I guess, from Birmingham to, to St. Louis, that was a jump back up towards a bigger city, but not by a lot. No, well, St. Louis is much bigger than Birmingham, put it that way. But uh, but St. Louis reminds me a lot of uh, of Pittsburgh. And whenever I say that, people are from St. Louis look at me like I have three heads. And it's not that big of a jump. Pittsburgh is probably about the same size as St. Louis. Uh, has a lot of, um, you know, the, you have the downtown Pittsburgh area where their sports stadiums are. And there's some businesses down there, obviously. And then everybody migrates out to the suburbs. And they have a lot of smaller areas. And they have actually... Unique smaller areas like we have, uh, you know, uh, if you go to South City here, uh, you know, you have the little, uh, the uh, Italian neighborhoods here. They have the same thing in Pittsburgh. And the city is divided up by the rivers, you know, McConaughey, the Allegheny and the Ohio River. Similar to here, the city is sort of divided up uh, by the Mississippi and Missouri River. And you have to go over bridges to get to different areas. Uh, a little more blue collar in uh, Pittsburgh than it is in St. Louis. There's a little more older money in St. Louis than there is in Pittsburgh. But very similar, very similar type people. And and Pittsburgh is more of a Midwest city. People, for some reason, think Pittsburgh is East Coast. Pittsburgh is nothing like East Coast. Philadelphia, East Coast. Pittsburgh, like St. Louis. And and you know, so when I, so the move from, if I was from the move from Pittsburgh to here is about the same. Obviously, move from uh, Pittsburgh to Birmingham, Smaller Birmingham here, bigger, um, but it's it's a little big city. I mean, it's it's not it's not Chicago, it's not uh, New York, but it's you know, but it's good, accessible to other cities. So then you end up here. You got the sports medicine practice, and then at some point you start taking care of the Cardinals. You you have a previous practice where partners don't send business to you, and you leave that and. C- come to a new practice and now you take care of the Cardinals. How does that transition happen? So, so this is because the, we don't have a professional rugby team, Jeff. <laughs> well, well, this is, this is a, this is a funny story. So I'm in Alabama and uh, one of the Cardinal players comes down there to have surgery and the Cardinal head physician, uh, George Paletta comes down with uh, the player and George and Dr. Andrews do the surgery. I'm scrubbed into, I'm watching the surgery and they do the surgery on the player and then they leave. I tell Dr. Andrews after all of this, um, you know, at the end that I took this job in St. Louis and he says, well, you should look up George. And I go, uh, Dr. Paletta, and he goes, yeah, he takes care of the Cardinals. Remember you met him when he brought the player down here to be operated on and you should talk to him and, you know, and he can obviously give you the run of the city, help you, you know, figure out what to do practice wise and everything else. So I called George and George is like, yeah, you know, I'm glad you're coming to the city. You know, um, we have to go to a baseball game sometime. I'll take you down there and show you the, you know, the facilities and everything. And I'm like, well, this is great. So we go down there to a game once and we shows me everything, introduces me all the trainers. And I think it's great. And, you know, and obviously he's taking care of the team and he's with Washington University and they have the contract. The next year, he says to me, I'm out of town and all my partners are out of town and no one can cover this baseball game. Can you cover it for me? And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I'll cover the game. So I go down there and he and I feel great because he allows me to cover the game. Obviously, I'm thinking, wow, he has, you know, obviously he thinks that I know something and I'm not crazy and I won't hurt anybody. So I cover the game. And after the game, 
uh, when he gets back in town, I say to him, I said, you know, and somebody had said this to me, it said, oh, when I told him that I was covering a game for Dr. Paulette, and they go, oh, there's a bunch of Palettas from St. Louis, and one of them is a plastic surgeon. And I, so I go to George, I say, George, um, are you uh, related to the Palettas from St. Louis? And George says, no, I'm from New York. And I go, oh, you're from New York? I'm from New York too. And I said, do you know what? When I was in college, I went to college with a Steve Paletta, who's my fraternity brother, who's an all-American lacrosse player. And George looks me straight in the face and goes, that's my brother. That's how I know you, idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And there you are. And there you are. So That's funny because you didn't even know that existed. That's hilarious. You didn't play lacrosse. Didn't play lacrosse. Probably could, though. Probably. All-American. Honestly, really. universe. So you've been taking care of the Cardinals for how long then? Since uh, 2006. You You and Paletta have been the mainstays for that. Yeah, I think he started in 1998, and then we had a little hiatus between 2013 <laughs> and 2016, and then we were back again. So, do you enjoy that part of your work? Yeah, it's it's actually it's fun, and and the players are, you know, getting to know them on that basis as being you know a physician for them. You get to know them a little bit more personally, obviously, because you're seeing them all the time when you're down there, and and you get to you get to understand that they you know that. Um, when you're a sports fan and you see these athletes, you only relate to them based on what they do on the field. And when you're working with them every day, uh, you know, in a, as a physician or even if you were an athletic trainer or, um, or a physical therapist, it becomes a completely different, um, you get a different outlook on them. You get to know a little bit about their personality. You get to know a little bit about uh, some of them. For instance, you see some of their family members. So you get to know a little bit more about their family. And you realize that, you know, they have the same problems and everything else that you have, you know. And and, you, and it's weird because, like I said, when you're a sports fan, you just they're sort of up on a pedestal because they play something. If you especially say you're a hey, Jeff, you're a big baseball fan. And you always want to play baseball, but you weren't able to play at a professional level. And here's this professional baseball player. And you just think that, wow, you know, they have all these skills to play professional baseball and everything in their life is great. Well, you know, they have other things. They have the same problems you have, you know, same things, you know, with their kids, with their, you know, with getting their kids to school or feeding their kids or, or whatever problems they have with their, with the, you know, with their wife or, you know, so it's, it's so it's, it they're human and, and it, and it, you get away from dehumanizing them and just making them an athlete by working with them. Put it that way. I do want to touch on something. I don't know how to touch on it. Keep but, your hands off. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you are, you are different. I don't know how to say this eloquently, so I'll just say it the way I know. You just made that sound kind of creepy. I know. Well, here's, I, I want to know about this. Okay. And I, I know, I, I'm pretty sure he'll talk about it and tell me how to address it, but you're an African-American gentleman. There's not a lot of African-American orthopedic surgeons, well, especially in this town, but in general, I haven't met a ton. Is that, I mean, what's that like? Well, it's interesting. Can I ask that question? No, you can ask that question. It's, it's interesting because we have, um, I'm on this, uh, I guess, WhatsApp. Um, uh, we, have a, we have a group chat and we call it the 1.5% because 1.5% of orthopedic surgeons are African-Americans. 
whereas 20% of the population is African-American. So, so yeah, so, so we are all in this chat together and it's very interesting because we always try to, uh, get together for at different conferences, whoever is around, uh, sometimes people will ask questions about somebody else in the area that you might know. Like I, you know, I have a friend who's in Dallas that got hurt. Do you know a good orthopedist regardless of, 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 you know, of, um, of ethnicity, you know, do you know one, if you know somebody that is an African-American, it's great. But if you know somebody else that's good, obviously that's great too. Uh, but it's just interesting because uh, talking to trying to get some diversity in, uh, in the field of orthopedic surgery is what the whole premise of this, um, this chat is to identify uh, young African-American med students that may want to go into orthopedics and try to mentor them and try to say, Hey, this is, this is the path I took or this is how I did it. Or these are the people you should maybe you should talk to, to try to further your education. But it, it is, it's um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, I think is taking this a little more seriously over the last few years with regards to looking at the diversity in orthopedic surgery, both not just with African-Americans, but also with women. It's the same thing, you know? So, that, so looking at this from the standpoint of, we need to be more diverse. This can't be just this sort of, old boys network where everybody is, uh, you know, the same. It's interesting you say that because my favorite orthopedic, I had a myriad of health orthopedic issues growing up. I had Perthes as a child. I've had uh, 12 operations on my hip and my favorite orthopedic surgeon of all time that ever operated on me was a woman down in Houston. Her name is Dr. Rosemary Buckle. And to this day, she probably has no idea what she means to me, but she was, she's been the, my favorite. And I think back on her all the time because it is such a good old boys network. And then I think it was really hard for her, like being a woman. And then I go, okay, well, what, what did Lyndon go through? Cause it is such a, I mean, it just is, I don't know what else to, how else to describe it. Right. Like it is so good old boys. That, it, it sort of is. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell a funny story because it, because it, it, I always laugh about it. And everybody that did a residency with me who was a resident around my time at that time laughs about the same story. When you start your residency, um, I'd done my general surgery internship. And uh, here I am. I'm the only African-American um, resident at the University of Pittsburgh. And they have one woman. So it's one or one African-American, one woman in this whole program. And there are eight residents per year. So that's 40 residents. So here we are. Um, I'm on call the first day, July 1st. And I always tell you, never get hurt in July because that's when all the new residents start. So here I am. I'm on call July 1st. And it is just crazy. There's like car crashes. There's, there's gunshots. There's, and I have an ER full of people that are hurt and people are going up to the OR and they're getting operated on. And I never make it to the OR because I'm down in the ER just triaging everything upstairs. So the next morning, I'm supposed to present all of the things that came in that night and everything that happened. So obviously some people were operated on, uh, they're X-rays are on the X-ray board, and I'm supposed to explain what happened, even though I wasn't upstairs when the fractures were fixed or what they did. So Dr. Uh, Herndon, who ends up being the president of the American Orthopedic uh, Surgeons, uh, like years later, um, uh, he's our chairman and very uh, big guy, 6'4", 
really large guy, very intimidating. Uh, and he's in the room. And then the head of uh, trauma surgery, Gary Gruen's in the room. And then there are all these other uh, attendings and all the residents. And it's literally a room that's probably a little bit bigger than this room. So you have almost 40 people in this room standing there. And I'm up at the board uh, presenting these x-rays. And every time I put an x-ray up, Dr. Herndon asked me a question. And then one of the other attendees asked me a question. And then, so I'm getting what we call in the medical world pimped about all this stuff. And I'm just getting, I'm getting killed up there. And I'm and half the questions I can't answer. And I didn't ask one of the residents, senior residents or one of the other junior residents in the room. So finally, after all of this goes on for about 30 minutes of me getting pimped at the end of it, I look at all of them and I say, is this because I'm black? <laughs> and they, went, they, la- I've never seen so much laughter in a room in my life. And even Herndon, who isn't really a laugher, had to laugh at that. Cause I was like, cause I was like, hey, do you guys do this all the time to everybody else? Or you're just doing this to me today. Cause you're trying to get me. So so, but, but, uh, yeah, but it's, um, it, it is, it's a problem. Uh, obviously people are trying to address it and, uh, uh, Eric Carson, who is here, he used to be in at the university of uh, Virginia. He was one of the sports medicine physicians down there and took care of the teams down there. He actually is at Wash U now. He's, uh, uh, one of the physicians that taking over and doing all the stuff at the VA hospital for Wash Washington university is obviously an African-American surgeon, a friend of mine, and he's very, uh, um, active in that whole uh, campaign to try to get more diversity into uh, orthopedic surgery. But it, but it is, I mean, it, when you look at it and then the question I have all the time uh, with that is that, okay, now you're an orthopedic surgeon and it doesn't matter how good, how well trained you are. Are you looked at differently because most of the other orthopedic surgeons in the area are not the same as you, obviously you're an African-American or not African-American. And does that make a difference if somebody comes to see you? You know, do they look at that differently? Do they see that differently? They say, well, maybe you don't know as much as this other surgeon because, you know, you're African-American and they're not. I don't, you know, I've I've always, I don't think about it that way, but but I look at it and, you know, and maybe people think about it that way. My, the reason why I say that, Jeff, is because my dad, who's dead now, but my, my dad uh, ended up having cancer. And uh, when he would go and see his physicians, he would immediately call me whenever he saw somebody. And if they were Caucasian, they were okay. If he saw an Indian doctor, he'd have to call me immediately and say, I don't know if this guy knows what he's doing. I'm like, no, dad, he's a doctor. He's good. I looked him up. He's, you're going to be fine. You know, so, so I'm looking at my own, my own dad's bias on this, on this thing. So, but it does, it actually ties back into what we started talking about. That's what's so interesting to me about your background. Like if you, if people knew the value of Freddie Foo's experience on you or the Fred or Jimmy Andrews experience on you, then I don't think it would, I mean, it would certainly change that argument. They'd be like, well, holy shit. He's trained with two of the guys on Mount Rushmore of, of orthopedics who gives a damn what color he is. He could be purple. We don't care because look at where he, like, look at his pedigree, but that, that pedigree doesn't mean anything to the public. And I've always been like, why is that? Like I've worked with other surgeons here in town that have really good pedigrees. And it's like, nobody gives a shit what their pedigree is. You, you didn't, you did all they look at is half the time. It's like, well, you went to Wash U, so then you must be good because you went to Wash U here locally or SLU or whatever the case may be. But it's like, whoa. Well, there, I think well, you a- could use that same argument on the flip side 
he works with the Cardinals, so he gets a maybe a bit of a pass that he's a great surgeon because he works with the Cardinals. Now, I think that's a, a, legit, a legitimate pass because they're not going to have somebody in their organization who's not good, but you do get a pass on the flip side. It's interesting to me. I've always wondered quietly before. I've never had the guts to ask him. I don't know why I don't have the guts. I guess it's just you feel uncomfortable that you don't want to walk into something that you want to ask an honest question, but not be looked at anyway. There's inherent bias in almost everything. Um, And you you don't realize it. As I often think about my personality is so much like a surgeon and I didn't do that. And I, it, it really... I don't know that I had the confidence when I was in medical school making those decisions to do something that I knew would be harder for me. Now, we'd be remiss if we let Dr. Gross get out of this room without talking about the Halloween. Par- yeah. I know. The party. I know. Have so you ever been invited on, to the party, Dr. Herford? Heck no. Uh, neither have I. Honestly, I. I assume it's probably just lost in the mail. I love and, wearing and, costumes. And we recently switched offices change. so that... Uh, that I mean, and we do I, have an issue with males, oh, so it's right. probably you that's probably the situation. Us. I'm yeah, sorry we missed yeah. it. <laughs> this happens. This happens. We're, we we should have. You should RSV RSVP next time because he probably left us off because we were rude. There you go. Uh, my my, my well, I, I have to say that uh, that uh, my assistant uh, Jennifer Boer does a lot of those uh, invites, and if you don't RSVP one year, she takes you off that list. She's pretty tough. That's so, on you, um, Jeff. You know, so but Jeff yeah. doesn't like to dress up though. I bought him a costume one year and that's the only time I really got mad at him. You wanna know the we only had really one fight in our entire professional career together, and it was because Herford came to work one day and said, We're dressing up for Halloween. And I was like, No, I'm not dressing up. And she was like, Yes. And so she bought me a costume and we were gonna do a team costume. Um, as the staff, we were gonna do guns and roses, and I was slash. And she bought me a leather vest to wear and then these sleeves that look like I had tattoos on my arms and then a wig and a top hat. And she brought it. And I think I had a deposition the day or something. I was, I I was like already in a suit and I was like, I never wear suits in the first place, but I was in a suit that day. And she was mad because I wouldn't put the costume on. And she like, it was like, I was annoyed. It was like a real marriage fight. She did not yell at me. She got very quiet. (laughs) And I was like, holy shit. And I I remember telling our assistant, I was like, I think she's really pissed off at me. (laughs) Like she's not talking to me. And she was really, her feelings were very hurt. And then at the end of the day, it was a great costume, by the way. And at the end of the day, she goes, give me back that vest. I'll send it back. (laughs) (laughs) It was like $75. It was so, it smelled so good. (laughs) It was like a medium though. Let's all be honest. That's the other thing. It was not fitting on but one arm of this body. Okay. But we've heard stories of this epic Dr. Gross Halloween party that we understand benefits a charity. Yeah. So when this first started, what, eight years ago, I think it was nine years ago, I decided I was going to have a Halloween party. And I was at that point in time, I was living in my, uh, in a townhouse and this is the craziest thing. We decided to have this Halloween party. We actually rent a tent and attach it to the back of my garage. And I invited some friends. We have a DJ in the garage and it, and it's 
low key. It's probably like 30, 40, probably 30 people at the most. And do you dress up for this Halloween party? Yes. Everybody, everybody has to dress up. If you don't dress up, you can't get in. So everybody dresses up. There's no theme for this first party, but we have the party. And it's so funny because here we are. And, and uh, yeah, I was living in, you know, right on the edge of Clayton at that point in time. And, you know, the party's going on. It's about one o'clock in, in, at night. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking around. And I see these people and they're dressed like police officers. And they're walking around. And and the thing that made it that 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 didn't dawn on me is that they were a little shorter, number one. So so then I'm thinking, okay, they're you know, maybe they are like midgets? Not midgets, but but but, but just not that. no I'm that, sorry. short people. <laughs> that we have to use short people now. But My but no, God. but they were shorter. And and it's funny because they're walking around and next thing I know, people at my party are like trying to take their guns and, and, and touch them. And, and next thing you know, they're really pissed and they come to me and they go, do you own this house? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, we're the police. And they really were the police. And they're like, you have to shut this down. It's one o'clock. Your neighbors are complaining. So we shut it down. So then the next year when I, I, you know, I moved to the house that I'd built and we decided to have this a Halloween party, we had a party and it really wasn't a theme again. And then Every year after that, it started getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And then we'd have themes and uh, and sometimes small themes, sometimes big themes. And all of a sudden, like for this year, it was a, a haunted tiki island. And we had not only did we have a theme, but we had props in my front yard. There's like a yard, large shipwreck ship. We have like a, a volcano. We had we had we had actors. I mean, we have performers. I mean, it's just like, and it got to the point where where, sounds like fantasy Island right now. It got to the point where one year we literally had probably about 120, 130 people at this party. Uh, My upper and lower levels of my house, there's a DJ, there's a, my friends call it the VIP room because my garage is made up and we make it a little bit different than the rest of the house. And, you know, and it, it just got bigger and bigger. And then I will, I'm a um, board member for a uh, for a charity called the Gateway to Hope. And the Gateway to Hope is a charity. Uh, and the function of that charity is to uh, help women who have breast cancer that can't pay for their treatment. So we actually pay their insurance. We pay their deductibles. We pay for incidentals if they need child care, if they need transportation, uh, uh, any of these things. If, if they if they can't work because they're they've had surgery and they have to go through chemotherapy and they can't pay uh, uh, their mortgage, we do all those things for them. So almost all of the money that we raise goes towards helping these women. We probably help about between three to uh, 350 women a year in the St. Louis area, both metropolitan and, and the overlying areas. So uh, it just so happened that uh, because my party became so big and I would do it for free, I don't charge anybody anything to get in that I just decided as we started doing this, since I was uh, on the board that maybe we would have people just do donations and we'd have people donate whatever they wanted to donate. And uh, I think this year we had, uh, we raised uh, about $12,000 uh, for this. And uh, just with my Halloween party with people coming to the party and, uh, and donating, but it's, uh, but the party has become its own animal almost. So it's. So that's very sweet. And I actually, I love um, charitable giving and, but 
what did you dress up like this year? Let's be serious. That's what we're interested <laughs> this in. Year, this year, what, oh, so I dressed, so this year was a haunted Tiki Island. I dressed up as uh, Moose, Moose Finbora from uh, from Jumanji, so uh, Kevin Hart's character. And uh, then I dressed up, I was a, a voodoo doctor, so. So you do costume changes during this event? I usually have at least two, sometimes up to four. So you need to Facebook live some of this and you get some online donations. Just a couple of those costume changes brief. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So why Halloween? Have you, is Halloween just a big thing to you? I like Halloween. I think Halloween is fun. You can get dressed up. You can be a little bit silly. I mean, we have a, I always laugh because we, because I think it's great because half the time I don't know who people are. You know, uh, you know, here I am. Well, some people I know who they are. Like last year, uh, like, Chris Pronger comes every year and Chris is very tall. So it's very easy to see who he is. So no matter what costume he wears, I know who he is. And I, and I, and his wife, Lauren, we always laugh because I'm like, well, Chris's costume only can be certain things. This year he was like a, a, a huge tiki pole. So, which was sort of Clever. funny because, because he's a, you know, and then, and, you know, and it's not, it's fun to have, you know, so like I said, it's, it's just fun to see people and try to figure out who they are and they have costumes, especially if they, if, you know, if, sometimes it's easy to see who they are because you can see their face. And, uh, but sometimes we, I mean, we, we've gotten so elaborate that we actually have makeup artists at my party. So you can get face painting and, and makeup Lord. done. Yeah. So it's people set up appointments during the night to get the, to get there and to get their, uh, their costume face, they get their face painted or, or get makeup put on. And then they are at the party. So it's, it's gotten pretty elaborate. A couple of years we had costumes at the door for people that didn't get dressed up. So you yeah. had to, you had to have a costume to come it's in. Like Al's downtown. They'll give you a coat if you walk in there without your jacket. How, what the hell's Al's downtown? Again, I don't know what this is. I, I don't live fancy like you. Well, well, Dr. Gross, we have one last thing. This is the best part. You know what? This has been great because, I mean, I knew you were accomplished. Honestly, I didn't really know you were accomplished. I do now. I'm impressed. One, because I, I mean, played really? Sp- Did well, you no, just no, say, no. well, I didn't really know you were accomplished. I kind of thought you sucked. But- no, I didn't mean it that way. I, oh, okay. Of course, there's a certain you know level of accomplishment of getting through and making it through medical school. But I played sports in college. To juggle that is crazy. So you did that at a higher level than I did. And that's amazing. It's it's tough. Well, I mean, anything higher than you is amazing. I'm, oh, shush. I was, I was just impressed that you didn't ask me about the best thing I ever did in life. I had some other questions for you because I heard about some hiking adventures and this is up my, this is really my jam. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about how I invented chili cheese fries because that, that's, oh, that's oh, the thing. Oh, I that's, heard that. We were somewhere the thing, you man, told us. I do. I, you got it. Now you've committed. You yeah, got to tell this story that, because I've heard this story, but I'll laugh my ass yes, off. Yes, I totally yeah. forgot. Yes, yes. And, and this is why I, right now I, I have to somehow find a way to, um, to have some lawsuits so I can get some money back on this because, uh, you know, I did invent chili cheese fries. At least I invented my version of chili cheese fries. So, but I was living in New York and I was going to medical school and I went to famous Nathan's a hot dog place and they had cheese fries and they had chili dogs. And I went up to the front and I said, I want cheese fries. And I said to the attendant there, I go, what if you put some chili on those cheese fries? And she looked at me like I was crazy and said, well, we don't sell that. That's not what we have here. We have cheese fries and we have chili dogs. So I go, but you have chili back there. So you could easily just take a, you know, a scoop of the chili and put it on the cheese 
fries. And she says, well, I don't know if I can do that. And I go, where's your manager? So the manager comes up and I said my idea and what I wanted to do. And he looks at me and he goes, well, we really can't do that because we'd have to charge you something. I said, well, what do you want to charge me? And he says, well, it'd be like 25 cents more. And I said, well, that's fine. Just do that. And they did it. And I had my chili cheese fries and I went and ate there and I had a good time. It was really great. And then I come back a week later and everybody's having chili cheese fries. So now it's a thing. They have it on the menu. People have chili cheese fries. So I'm like sitting there going, well, they didn't have chili cheese fries before I got here. Now they have chili cheese fries. So there you go. So obviously somebody raised the price more than 25 cents. Well, somebody owes me money, some sort of money. So we got to find some attorneys. Nathan's has got deep pockets. We can settle out of court right now. $5 million. There you go. There you go. I mean, what are the gross profits on? cheese fries per year for Nathan's. Oh my God. Gotta be massive. We have another area of his life that I've heard about. You travel. Yes. Where's your favorite place? You've been all over the world. I'm presuming. Yeah. I I like to go to Italy. Um, I, I I like all the places in Italy. I've been to, you know, the Venice to Rome to Florence. I actually, uh, see, and I actually rode my bike. I did a bike trip for six days riding through Tuscany. So, um, so I like, I like, Italy, like hey, France is nice. I've been, you know, I like uh, the southern part of France. Uh, going to Saint Tropez, you know, south of France is nice. So, so those are your places. Yeah, I mean, I wish I, there are tons of other places I like to go. I've never been to uh, Australia. You know, there are places in probably in Africa I'd like to go to. Um, yeah, I've been to South America. I've been to uh, um, uh, Brazil and Uruguay, and so Festus. Have you been there yet? Yes, it's Very, beautiful yes. this time of year. The leaves have turned. Arnold. Arnold. Oh, oh, that's beautiful. Bourbon, Missouri. Another right. gorgeous part of Cuba. Well, Cuba. This this has been a fun time, but we have one thing left, right? Yes, because we could keep going. We and could. I know your time is valuable. He's probably learning lacrosse or he's probably into jujitsu, maybe MMA fighter. The world knitting team. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, yeah, you got to slow down do? sometime. <laughs> This this last section is uh, it's it's Herford and I's favorite part. It's called getting hammered with Doctor Herford and Jeff Todd. This is where we really find out if you're a nerd or you're pretty cool. So no pressure though. No pressure. Five questions, top of mind answers. No deep thoughts here. We don't don't tap into your PhD brain. Stick in your <laughs> Stick in your undergrad. Go back to brain. that first concussion brain. Yeah, first concussion. So, five questions. Are you ready? Okay. Question number one. And we just already almost kind of tapped on it, but what is your favorite or funniest Halloween costume? Oh, uh, when I was the Django or Django, as I would oh. call it. So, I liked my Django costume. Oh, my goodness. So, that's a good one. Yeah. That, Good answer. Yeah, I'll go there. Course, Except uh, my assistant Jennifer would say the worst costume was my uh, Darth Vader costume. So Why is that? Why? What was wrong with your Darth Vader? There was a an element that went around my waist and around my lower area. Pants? that had well, <laughs> Not pants, but it was sort of like a, it was almost like a large uh, athletic cup that had to be strapped on. <laughs> From the back. And I think my assistant didn't think that that was the best thing to do for my costume. So, Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I think that's my. <laughs> Question number two. 
If you could go to any concert right now, who would you go see? Uh, Foo Fighters. Oh, that's such a good answer. Dave Grohl is like. He's a man. Oh, he's he is a man. Just, he is great. I have Darius Rucker tickets I need to get rid of. You wouldn't go there. Oh, yes, I would. <laughs> okay. I've seen Darius Rucker before, I too. He's love, very good. Very yeah. good. But Foo Fighters, great answer. Question number three. If you could time travel, where would you go? All right. I go back to I'd like to meet Abraham Lincoln. That's what I'd like to do. Yeah. I hope before Ford Theater. Uh, yes, before Ford <laughs> okay. Theater. Yes. Not very chatty afterwards. Yes. <laughs> yes. That so. might be a little messy. God. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Question number four. If you could have a superpower, what would you choose? Okay, so I used to watch a lot of um, uh, cartoons. Oh. <laughs> so I would, I would I'd probably be Wolverine. I'd probably I, I want I want mutant healing powers. That's what I want. See. That we've never had that answer. No, that's way better than <laughs> giraffes. <laughs> oh, uh, you said the ability to understand all languages. I do, honestly. That's one a of the single worst answers I've it ever heard. Great answer. It's understand not. and speak all she, languages. She says, Oh, I wish I could. And I told her at the time, and I've said this about a thousand times, I'm like, You can do that. Like, you can study. And you could learn every language if you just put your mind to it. And she's like, no, it'd just be really awesome. I'm like. I don't want to study for that. No flight, no yeah. super speed. No, mutant healing powers. Mutant, great answer. Mutant healing powers like Wolverine. Or you'd have to be like Tony Stark and be like uh, really smart and be Iron Man. I mean. So. I could do that one. Now, do you Wolverine with or without the claws? Well, you have to have the claws. Okay. With the claws. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I agree. Hello. <laughs> Well, mutant healing powers is one thing, but then have, you know, whatever skeleton made of metal or something, whatever. But question number five, this is a famous question, Doc, and we have not taken it out. Her thought I should, but I refuse to. So now we just ask everybody. And, and it will be the basis of my thesis that I write because this is the level of intelligence that I could write a thesis on. If you could be any animal, what and why? I'd be a lion. Of course you would. God damn it. A lion. <laughs> and why? Well, they're king of the jungle. <laughs> so Herford and I are really, we're going to extrapolate this out over, over all the doctors and all the people that we talk to. And we're going to track with their answers because there's definitely a trend. I'm telling you, and I think we could probably um, put the animal out there and pick the specialty. 100%. We should be part of a residency matching program and our top-notch getting hammered questions probably Honestly, equate we, to who could be the best orthopedic surgeon. I mean, we could do diversity of specialties based on the answers. thousand percent. Surgeons, sports medicine surgeons, they go big cats or big aggressive animals. Uh, Rob Hagen, a really, buffalo. really smart guy, right? Like he's a super smooth, smart dude. He goes, oh, I want to be a buffalo. Not even a pause. I thought I was going to choke because not one chance in the whole entire lifetime of me would I ever consider a buffalo being an animal. I would whisper. Well, the other, well, the, well you see, you should have said a hippopotamus. Hippopotamus, a bird, you know, something yeah, where you could do something. Yeah, because <laughs> hippos are, are like they're rough. They, they kill more people in Africa than that's, the other animal. I mean, right. they're they're like they're they rough. they beat everybody up. My they, first year of PA school, we Jeff had Jeff wants to be a mongoose. No, are you kidding me? I'm I don't even know. I don't even have an answer to that question. And we've asked a thousand times. I haven't thought about it, but I want to be a clam. Yeah, something small. Could I be like something dainty, like a flower? 
Maybe a dragonfly. Maybe a fruit fly. You can just want to sit in the back of the room. Eat. I like bananas. Dead bananas. Well, Dr. Gross, we thank you so much for joining us. This has been super fun. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If people want to get a hold of Dr. Gross, he is at the Orthopedic Center of St. Louis. They have an office in St. Louis in the Chesterfield area. They have an office in Cape Girardeau. The appointment line to reach his staff is 314-336-2566. Shoulder, elbow, knee. Available online at drlindengross.com and on Facebook at, at Dr. Linden Gross. All right. Thanks, Dr. Gross. We appreciate it. Thank you. Till next time, this has been the Double Dose Podcast with Dr. Trish. And Jeff Todd.